they've been traversing. Uh, we wanted to welcome them back, as well as uh, Jerry Laniac. It's nice to see her back. She's been uh, away with a, a little uh, surgery and injury, but we're so glad to have her back. I would encourage you to turn with me, if you haven't already, to Revelation chapter 3. And we are in the midst, or the end, getting near the end, of our Listen Up series. And we take that from the part of Jesus when he is addressing each church. And he finishes, finishes each letter, because he's writing a letter to each church. And he finishes, finishes each one with, He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we need to keep that in mind as we're going to be going through this together. And we're going to see today the church of Philadelphia, which is the, the faithful church. We've been going through each church, and each church has certain characteristics about it. Some have a word of admonition, something that they are doing wrong. Matter of fact, five of them have such words. They have a word of admonition, as well as a word of exhortation and encouragement for them. But two churches have just the word of exhortation. And Christ is addressing this church. And, and this is one of the churches that we will see just has exhortation and there's no word of admonition. And this church in Philadelphia is one that can be called faithful, the faithful church. Now what does it mean to be faithful? It's kind of a, a bygone word today, how we could, we could expect someone to be faithful for the duration of their life. And that can mean in anything, in marriage, to a job, to, to, uh, to, to one's uh, life goals or philosophies, whatever it may be. We find that people today are, are losing faith over and over and over again. But as this church, I'd, I have a prayer that it will be faithful. Always be faithful to the, to the gospel, to the word of God. In many churches today, I don't know if you, how much you've interacted with those in different churches, but many churches are throwing out the word of God, left and right. And they're trying to be much more hip with the times. But you know the expression goes, those who are married to the times or will be a widow in eternity. They will not be with Christ because they have sacrificed the Word of God. And the message of the Word of God has the, the story of Christ and what He has done on our behalf. But today, we're going to get a great indication as to what a faithful church looks like. But before we do that, let's pause for a moment of prayer. Let's pray. Father, I stand in awe at the task before me. Lord, to know that Satan is working overtime in our world, to know that this world has fallen and everywhere we turn it's grasping for our attention. And I get so many minutes on a Sunday morning to plead with individuals to choose you, to follow you. Lord, I pray that this moment might be a divine moment. I pray that it might be a time where you take the lightning bolts of your word and strike each one of our hearts. Lord, that you might drown us by your grace. That you might help us to marvel in the cross. And what it is that you have done as well as what you're going to do. Lord, may we get a, a glimpse a peek through the door of eternity to 
see how this whole world is going to end. What is going to happen to those who quit following you as well as to those that hold on to your word in the midst of great difficulty. Lord, I pray that you bless this time. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. I would encourage you to stay with me. If you want to follow along in your notes, please feel free to do so. It's in your bulletin on the back of the canvas. We're going to be going through this passage rather quickly, but I would uh, hope that you keep your fingers limber as we're going to be go through, going to go through this. So let's start in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? Now, let's just get our bearings. First of all, we know that these are seven letters that Christ has addressed. It's in the book of Revelation, and Christ is speaking to these seven churches. And we know that there weren't just seven churches, that there were many churches. But he is speaking to these churches. And these are examples for the other churches. And it's not just for them, although it was written for them in that time. But it's also written on our behalf, that we might see and take the truth that is in it for us and apply it to our lives. And we've been going through each church piece by piece. And today we come to the church in Philadelphia the church in Philadelphia. Now, we need to get an understanding of what's going on here because we, we know that, first of all, that this angel of the church is a, an angel, a real spirit being that has uh, kind of reign or guardianship over this church. And Jesus is addressing to this church, this fellowship, and Philadelphia. Now, Philadelphia is the sixth in our seven churches, and it's not one of the biggest cities. It's not a military city. It's not... Uh, a great city by any, uh, on any, by any means. Matter of fact, it's a relatively new city. It's the youngest out of all the cities that we're reading about. And the city ha has, uh, has an amazing history, really. And I, I'd have to uh, compare it to a modern-day city of San Francisco. Because, see, this city was relatively small, as I mentioned before, but it was susceptible to earthquakes. Matter of fact, there were earthquakes, some earthquakes that had devastated the city and scared the people so much that they began living outside of the city in fear of going back in because there were more earthquakes that they were they could feel the tremors of and they would they just quit quit going in the city and it was also uh, one that had great agriculture specifically vineyards so I, I think of it as San Francisco San Francisco has been devastated by earthquakes but if you go north of San Francisco you're in wine country so this is a group of people where there's great vegetation uh, they have a lot of earthquakes, and they also had a cult there to a, uh, a god named Dionysius, who is the god of wine, and many within this fellowship worship there. Now, we're also aware that it had a very large Jewish population. Many of these cities did. Uh, the Jews are scattered throughout what is known as Asia at that point in time, and they had synagogues in various places, and as we all know, that when Christians meet Jews and they're evangelizing Jews, within, especially within this context, there is either one of two responses, either welcome and embrace and embracing the message of Christ or complete rejection and then all out persecution. And, and we, we can see this. I mean, we remember the Apostle Paul, when he was called Saul, was a great persecutor of the church after he encountered what was known as the way. So we have this city and let's get an idea of the author of this letter and the church that met in this city. We have uh, Christ, obviously. He says, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now, 
he doesn't address himself by name. He doesn't say exactly his name, but he is saying who he is in his credentials, how he qualifies, characteristics of the reality of who he is. And he identifies himself as the Holy One. The Holy One is a term that is often used throughout the Old Testament of God himself. God is the Holy One, and Christ is identifying himself with that. He is the ultimate Holy One, the complete personification of holiness. So he is the ultimate Holy One. And then we have the True One, who is himself true. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He himself is truth. He himself is the definition of truth. And everything else is compared to him. So he says, the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens a door, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now, this can be a, a very confusing, confusing verse. What's he talking about here? Well, we know it's an allusion to the Old Testament. And he's speaking to uh, about a, a verse in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22 and 23, of one who has the key of David. It's the same expression that is, that is there. Because we understand that the Jews were looking for another king like David. And they, Christ is identifying himself with David. He is this coming king, and he is a steward over God's house. There's a man named Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was a steward of God's house, or God's treasury within the temple. And he controlled what went out, what came in. And Christ is saying, I have this key. I'm the heir to David, but I am God's steward of salvation. There is no salvation except through me. There is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. He's saying the only salvation is through me and in me. I have the key of David. I am his heir. I am the coming one that has been prophesied. So we, we know who the author is. It is Christ. And he's speaking to this church in Philadelphia. Now, as I mentioned before, we know that there was a Jewish population there. And this church was relatively small. We're going to see why in a moment. But we understand that this church had gone through a great deal of persecution. And he is encouraging them. He starts off and he says in verse 8, I know your works. Isn't that great? He says, I know your works. Do you know that Christ knows everything about you? He has every hair of your head numbered. He knows every hope and every dream. He knows the prayers that you make for other people. You know that person that you've been praying for over and over again, and their heart seems so resistant to the gospel? He knows. It's not in vain. He knows that person that you've been talking to about Christ. He knows what you've been going through in your family or in your marriage. He sees it. He sees the difficulty. Some of you are going through great difficulties right now that I can't even imagine. Some of you are unequally yoked. You're married to someone who is not a Christian, and it plagues you. It just covers you, and you feel so terrible about it. You don't know what to do, and it just weights you down. Others of you have been laboring and laboring, sharing with your children or your grandchildren or that person that you work with or that person that you attend school with, and, and you're waiting and saying, God, don't you hear me? Christ is saying, I know your works. I know. I know more than anyone else what you've gone through. I know your hopes. I know your dreams. I know your fears, and I know your sins. I know your works. And he goes on. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. 
I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before you. Now, let's look at the letter, that second part of verse 8. Behold, I have set before you an open door. What does that mean? Scholars go back and forth on this, but I believe it means opportunities for the gospel. And I could see that within 1 Corinthians 16.9, where the Apostle Paul says, For a great door, an effectual, is opened for me. An opportunity for the gospel. Or in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, a door was opened unto me of the Lord. Or Colossians 4.2, Pray that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ. Or Acts 14.27, Paul reviewed all that God had done with him and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. Now each of these things is in reference to an open door for the gospel. There is an opportunity to share the truth of who Christ is and what he has done for sinners. And that's one number one in your notes. Christ is giving you an opportunity, an open door for effective ministry. Christ is giving you an open door or opportunity for effective ministry. Did you know that Christ has made you to do good works for him? That's what you were made to do, just like a saxophone was made to be played. He has made you to do great works for the ministry. He has not made you to sit in church all the time and never do anything for his name. He has not made you to sit on your blessed assurance and do nothing for him. I mean that in all kindness. Because too many Christians are too busy sitting by and not going out. You know, one of the, the greatest things about the Gospels, and I, and I think you can get it down to, to a, a few different words. Christ says, come and see. Come and see what I have done. Come and see. But then you know what he says? Now go. Come and see. Now go. Go and make disciples. Come and see what I have done. Now go and make disciples. Come and see the miracles that I have done. Come and see. Come and taste for yourself. Come and try. Now go. Now go. There is an opportunity staring us in the face, but we don't realize it. We don't take advantage of it. We're so afraid. Satan has made us so afraid. He's so good at intimidating us. You ever been intimidated? You ever been intimidated before? Someone's pretty smart or comes in and they're good looking. I mean, guys do this. Guys especially. Guys come in. And, and I know this one guy, what he would do before he would go to, to uh, spend time at the beach, he would, he would be at his car right before he left the, par left the parking lot. And you know what he did? He'd get right behind his car and he would do all these push-ups. So he looked really big and buff. And he would try to go out to show off and intimidate the other guys to show that he was the strongest guy and, and try to, to put other people into submission or intimidate, whatever it is. And you might know this. People might make threats to you. They might try to talk you down. And Satan tries to do this. Satan is everywhere trying to make Christians look stupid. Turn on the television. Just turn it on for a few moments. Some of you need to turn it off. You watch too much. But see what Satan is trying to do for Christians. He's trying to create a world where it looks foolish to be a Christian. And in, in some ways it's already true, as we said earlier. The cross is foolishness to those that are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We can see this all over the place. How are Christians marginalized? I mean, all the time. You never hear about Christians doing a great thing, do you? You hear about 
these sexual abuses. You hear about all these lawsuits being labeled. You, you hear about certain statements that Christians have made or these weird sex or things like that. It's always thrown up in your face to make Christians look stupid and foolish and intolerant and, and not with the times. I mean, is that the way it is? Obviously not. But we can't be intimidated by that. Many Christians, unfortunately, are intimidated by that and become so impotent that they never go out and share the gospel. Christ is saying, I've opened a door for you. I've opened why this door to share. Here it is. No one can shut it, no matter how hard they try. They can't shut this door. I've opened it. Why? Because I'm the one that has the key. I'm the only one that has the key. I mean, have you ever been to a place where you don't have the keys? You've lost your keys and you can't get the door open? I mean, last yesterday, this was illustrated perfectly in my house. My, my daughter decided to turn the lock to our bedroom door and then shut the door. And my wife just got out of the shower. She couldn't get into our bedroom. So she calls me. She says, honey, I'm locked out of the bedroom. I said, well, I'll come and fix it later. No, you can't. I need it fixed now. So I come home, and I realize that she really locked the door. There's no key for it. So I had to uh, improvise. So I got the air conditioner and climbed in the window. Don't anyone try this at my house, okay? Just so you know that, I'm not giving you a means, but I didn't have a key, I didn't have a means to get in. I needed a key. Here he's saying, I have the key to salvation. I, not only do I have the key to salvation, but I have the key to death and Hades, hell itself. I have the key. I'm the only one that's defeated it. I'm the only one that gives you hope. I'm the only one that can give you purpose and clarity. And I'm giving you an opportunity right now. There's an opportunity for you. For you, and he says you, he knows you by name. It's not just for the pastors. He's saying for you, it's not just for the seminary students. If we had to rely on the seminary students, then gospel would never get out there. We need to, it, it's all about the people that he has established. It's a priesthood. Everyone here that is a believer in Christ is a priest. The priesthood of all believers. Christ has given you an opportunity. Are you walking through that door? What is keeping you from walking through that door? Right now, what is keeping you from walking through that door that Christ has for you? I didn't say it was going to be easy. I didn't say that Satan's not going to try to intimidate you. But you have to cut through the lies and listen to the truth of Christ. Don't listen to the lies because Satan wants to, he doesn't want you to enter that door. He's going to do anything he can to distract you. He's going to do anything he can to keep you away from doing a work for him. And Christ is saying, I have opened this door. I have given you this opportunity. Don't listen to anyone else. No one can shut this door, no matter what they say. No matter what they do, they can't go through it. I have given you an opportunity to share the gospel. But the problem that we as believers is entering through and taking that step. I mean, we look at it and we get fearful. We're just like Peter when he's walking on water. The waves go up and he sees them and he starts to freak out. He's looking at the circumstances around him and he doesn't, he takes his eye off of Christ. As soon as you take your eye off of Christ, you'll despair of what happens. You'll, you'll despair of your circumstances. You'll say, woe is me, it is impossible. It's impossible this task. You know, I mean, think about Christ. Everyone deserted him. The whole world turned against him. And yet he kept his eye on the prize. Let's continue on. Let's look at verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. 
you have kept my word and not denied my name. Now, this little power here was expressed through their keeping Christ's word, not denying his name. It's probably referring to effective witness in the community that was on a smaller scale because this church was relatively small in numbers. But he's saying that this ministry is before you. It's effective because you have kept my word and not denied my name. This helps underscore uh, that this entire thing is in reference to their personal witness to Christ. But they had kept his word, even though they had little power. There are many groups out there today, Christian in name, with church in their title, that cannot say this. They've not kept the word of God. Are you keeping the word of God? Are you looking to other means of living your life rather than the word of God? Christ and something. Christ and this philosophy. Christ and what the world is teaching me. Are you looking to the Bible, the Word of God, alone? You know, and many of you know this, that when we had the uh, appeal at the State House last month for the uh, Vote on Marriage Act, to place the marriage amendment on the ballot so that people might vote and say that marriage is between a man and a woman, I don't know if many of you knew this, that Peabody had the highest turnout of any city in the entire state of Massachusetts. More people came from the city of Peabody. As a matter of fact, uh, our representative, Joyce Spiliotis, voted uh, on for the people to have the opportunity to vote. Because many Christians showed up at her office, about 20 of them. She said, I've never had anyone of people of faith ever show up in my office before. Never. This is the first time it's ever happened. And she voted uh, for the opportunity to vote to say that marriage is between a man and a woman. And I was talking to this representative of the organization that set this up called Vote on Marriage. And he was telling me this and how encouraged he was to see so many people from Peabody go and, and, and uh, be there. But he, he told me at the same time, there's one church, and I'm, it'll remain nameless, that had the opportunity to go. But their pastor, if he would have said the word, they would have gone. And they asked him, they, said, they pleaded with him, you know, you should... Send your church to this. They should go and they should make a stance for this. And he said, I can't do that. This is why. He goes, because I don't know if homosexuality is wrong. I don't know if it's wrong. And this man looked at him and he, he, he was in disbelief and he started going through page after page of Scripture showing him the Word of God and what God has said. And the man kept giving responses and responses. And they went back and forth for some time and finally... The representative from Vote on Marriage threw up his hands and he said, you know, you realize that you have not given me one shred of scriptural reference to support your opinion. You have departed from the Word of God. I feel for him, but I feel more for his church to know that they have left the Word of God. Christ is saying, you have held fast, and it means everything about Christ. It means everything of the Christian life, the standards of the Christian life. And, and what he has for us. And it's not just in reference to that, but in reference to all phases and aspects of the Christian life. He's saying that you have held fast to my word. You have not departed from it. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. Because in doing and not speaking on Christ's behalf is denying the name of Christ. You know, I was reading in my quiet time this past week in 1 Samuel chapter 12 when Samuel was giving his farewell address to the people. And he says, far be it for me to sin by ceasing to pray for you. Have you thought of that? I mean, we think of the sins that we do, those are the sins of commission, but 
we forget about the sins of omission. What are, what are you failing to do? How are you denying the name of Christ? Are you denying him by failing to pray for one another? It's the biggest tragedy. We're to be praying for one another. To, to get on our knees and, and schedule that time to pray for one another. To share it with one another. To speak truth into one another's lives. To care for one another enough. But the problem is, as many of us have become so docile that we have forgotten what it means to truly labor for Christ. We've, got so, we've gotten so comfortable that we don't know what it means to walk by faith any longer. And the Christianity that we think we adhere to is nothing more than cultural clothing. We've lost the person of who Christ is. Let's continue on to verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. This group of believers was vindicated. How? Well, how would these Jews know that Christ loved the believers in Philadelphia? I'm not exactly quite sure, but those Jews wound up at the feet of that little church. And that's number two in your notes. The faithful church realizes that Jesus will take care of enemies. That's what the faithful church realizes. They don't fret about the enemy. They turn and face Christ. Christ says, I will make them bow down. Not you. This is where the Crusades messed everything up. It's the biggest blemish in the history of Christianity. To thinking that we can force this. We can't force this with people. We have to understand that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That's why we turn the other cheek. We give ourselves over. Today, it's all about rights. We talk about our rights. And yes, we should take advantage of our rights, just as Paul did as a Roman citizen, when we have the opportunity within our society as, as citizens within this world. But we also have to understand we should be wronged. I was listening to a missionary speak, and speaking of India, and he was saying the biggest reason the church is not as alive in India is because not as many people are willing to die to be martyred for the faith. Because everyone wants to be rights, have their rights, and be comfortable. I mean, we, we're not called to be comfortable people. We're called to be obedient, no matter what that means. Whether it means one of you here to go to Saudi Arabia and be a missionary and give your life, whether it means going to Malaysia, whether it means going next door, what has Christ called you to do? What is he calling you? What is he shocking you out of your mediocrity for in this life that you're living right now? What does he want for you? He wants you to do something great. You know why we don't see great things for Christ any longer? Because we refuse to attempt great things. He's called us to walk by faith, not by sight. And we're not doing that any longer. We don't entrust him to take care of our enemies. But Christ does. I mean, he says they are Jews, but they are not. They say they are Jews. They thought they were the true people of God. But he says, no, a Jew is not one outwardly, but is one inwardly. It has a circumcision of the heart. He's saying those are the true followers of Christ. And I'm going to make them bow down and recognize. Now, it may not be at this moment in time. I mean, think about the man we mentioned earlier who had just given his life for Christ's gospel. Did he take care? Did the Lord take care of the enemies? his enemies? Well, just because justice, justice is delayed doesn't mean that justice will be denied. There will be a moment in time, whether it be now or in eternity, that Christ 
will show them. And they will see. There will be vindication. Have you ever had that about something? You ever had that? You ever got in an argument with someone and you were so sure it was one thing and they were so sure and then it came out that you were right? Didn't you feel vindicated? I mean, think of you that are married. Are there any times that you ever fight with your spouse? Yes. When is the time we don't fight? Some of you are saying. And there's a time that one of you says you're right and the other one says you're right, they're right, and it comes to your point in time that you are right and you just feel great, proud as a peacock and stretch your stuff. You ever have that happen? Because I would like to know. I've never had that happen. My wife is always the one that is right in that regard. Just kidding. Let's continue on. Verse 10. Because you have kept my word about impatient patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. I think Ray Sedman brings this out. He says, this is a reference to the Lord's own endurance. He's been waiting until his enemies be made his footstool for long centuries. Since you have learned to wait like that, he is saying, since you have kept my word of patient endurance, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. One of the most fascinating pieces of uh, Egyptology, I don't know if you've ever studied Egyptology or watched a special on it, but when I was in Egypt, I got to see King Tutankhamun's footstool. It's fascinating. And his footstool has painted on it his enemies. Literally. The different tribal peoples, King Tut, these tribal peoples are right there, these tribal peoples that he has conquered, and he rests his feet on them. This Christ is speaking the same truth. He's saying now, he's waiting until his enemies are placed at his foot, his feet. He will do the same for us as well. Now, what does that mean? I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Now, I believe that this keeping you from the, the trial, this, tri- this hour of trial that is coming on the whole world, is a clear reference to what our Lord himself calls in Matthew 24, the great tribulation, a time of stress that will come upon the whole world, the like of which has never been known before in human history, nor, nor ever will be again. This will be the worst time of distress and bloodshed the world has ever known and seen. We, we will find vivid descriptions of it as we go on in Revelation. But the promise to the church is specific, specifically that it's to be delivered from this hour of trial. Actually, the word is not from, but of. To be delivered out of. Not just the trial, but out of the very time of the trial. It's one of the clearest promises of catching away the church before the great tribulation begins. And it's a promise of the departure of the church, which Paul describes vividly in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when he says, The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall be forever with the Lord. He's coming soon. We don't know when, but we know that we are to live our life in that expectation. Christians are people that are eschatological, meaning they look toward the end to knowing that it's going to end and everything is going to be said and happen just as if what he said would happen. All Christians are to live their life 
in that truth. Verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Now we know that a believer cannot lose his or her salvation. We know that we are saved. We are being saved and we will be saved. It's the three together. Christians can go off on one stream or the other, but it's the all three together. I am saved. I have come to know Christ, but I am being saved. Paul says, I run the race lest I be disqualified or run the race in vain. And I will be saved. Christ will glorify. That's why Christ talks about the sower going forth, sowing, having seed to sow and, and putting it on the ground. And some fell among the good soil and some among the rocky path and some among the thorns. And we know that it takes root for a time, especially within the thorns that it grows up. But the cares of this world and the love of riches and wealth choke it so it's unproductive. See, I believe that's a sign that a person never knew Christ to begin with. They, they give it evidence for a period of time, but then when persecution or tribulation comes, they fall away showing that they were never a believer in Christ to begin with. So, but what are we seeing here, though? I mean, if it's not about salvation, what's, it, what's he saying? He says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. So no one may seize your crown. Well, the crown is often seen as a reward. We see that over and over. Look in Matthew chapter 6. Christ is speaking of reward. Great is your reward. Great is your reward in heaven. Great is your reward. He says it over as a means of motivation. Here is a, a reward for you. Count how many times the word reward or treasure is used in Matthew chapter 6. Now we know that we earn a crown as a believer in Christ, the crown of life or the runner's crown, one that is incorruptible. When we serve Christ, we receive a crown. But can you lose your crown? I believe the answer is yes. The sin in this world can take away your crown. As 2 John verse 8 says, Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. You can lose your crown. It's not referring to losing one's salvation. You cannot lose it. However, staying in sin may reveal that one is not saved to begin with. Remember, one may appear to be saved for a time, but as difficulties develop, the true state of their soul is seen. I like how John MacArthur words this. He says, The world and the flesh would like to rob you of your reward. You can serve Christ and run a reward. But if you go back into sin, you can lose it. Let's look at verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear. Listen up. To what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers. It's a finish line picture. The one who finishes the race well will be rewarded as being a pillar in the temple of my God. Now remember, this city was susceptible to what? Stay with me. It's hot in here, I know. Look at me, I'm still sweating. It's, they had earthquakes. And the people were living outside the city and he's saying, no more, you'll be secure. You'll be a pillar. And then it talks about a, a new name. Often in antiquity, we see pillars named. Pillars are given a name as a means of honor. And he's saying, you will be a pillar in the temple of my God, God's new temple. You will be within him, and you will have the, the city of my God, the name of the city, this new Jerusalem. You will be a citizen, and you will have the name of my God upon you. And he says, my own new name, Christ's new name. The illusion in uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 19, 
to Christ's new name, verse 11, when he says, uh, John, the apostle, as he's in the spirit, says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. But he has a new name. A new name. See, another understanding of Philadelphia is it is a city that was renamed numerous times. They received new names. And that happens whenever a city is conquered. The new people come in and they give it a new name. And he's saying, no, this will have a secure name, a name that will never change. You will be eternally identified with Christ. But it's to the one who conquers. And that leads me to point number three. The faithful church realizes that Jesus will reward our labor. He will reward our labor. Verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. He won't flee from it, just as they were fleeing from the earthquakes. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. You will be eternally identified with me. So the faithful church realizes that Jesus will reward our labor. Do you realize that? that even the smallest parts of your life that have been done for Christ will be rewarded? Do you live your life within the scope of eternity? Looking to know that it's not about earthly delights and earthly pleasures, it's receiving this eternal reward from Christ. Do you fight for that? Do you live your life in the hope of Him coming again? Or are you so absorbed with this world and what it has to offer that you can't see what Christ has for you anymore? I think that the church today is so sick. Matter of fact, I was talking to someone the other day. The more that I have studied, the more that I have breathed in the Word of God, I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that there are many Christians who believe that they are saved that are not. Now, when they enter into step into eternity, they will become all too aware of their state before Christ. And they realize that they miss it. Many Christians today are trying to live for both the world and Christ. They are taking the American dream and Christianizing it. They're trying to equate the two together. And people are spending billions of dollars to get you to believe that that is the right way to live. That about having the right car, the right boat, the right house, the right clothing, the right school, the right name. You know what? God doesn't care about how intelligent you are. Thank the Lord for that. He doesn't care what school you have gone to. He doesn't care what your family background is. He doesn't care about any of those things. He doesn't care how good looking you are. He doesn't care what your figure is. He doesn't care what your job is. And he doesn't care what's in your bank account. He doesn't care about any of that stuff at all. At all. It doesn't get you anything in the sight of God. What He cares about, are you faithful to what He has? Are you being obedient to what He has? Are you doing what He has asked you to do, no matter what it is? If He calls you to die, go and die. If He calls you to, to go to the outreach extremes and no one will ever hear your name, 
then go do it. God does not call you to be a celebrity. He does not call you to be featured on YouTube. He doesn't call you to have your name be held up by everyone. He only calls you to live your life for Him. And be faithful to that. And know that He sees your labor and He will reward it. It's not about being flashy. This is how we can conclude this. Or having big numbers. But being true to what Jesus has revealed to us we do what He has made available to us, these open doors, knowing that He'll take care of our enemies, He will take care of the rest. He will take care of all those details. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And all these other things will be added unto you as well. The life of radical obedience. Eating at the table of His delight and His table alone. Only in Christ. And not in anything else. Let's pray. Lord, I don't even know what to pray. Lord, I can't change hearts and minds. Forgive me for trying. Forgive me for taking the job that is only yours. Lord, I desire that we be a faithful church, that we be faithful Christians, Ones that are living our life in the reality of your coming. Ones that bond together. Ones that realize that we will have enemies in tribulation, but to know that we are not to take vengeance upon them. To save to it and give you the truth that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Lord, we desire to be ever faithful. We know that we have an open door in front of us. Forgive us for not entering in. Forgive us for being so intimidated by those around us in the world that we inhabit and listening to its fallenness and not listening to your truth. Forgive us for feasting at the table of the world and not feasting at the table of Christ. Lord, we want to be faithful. And I pray that Calvary will always be faithful to your word, that it will never deviate from the truth found within and I pray, Lord, that each individual might truly realize the situation of which we find ourselves. Lord, let us not continue to breathe this air, this carbon monoxide of cultural compromise, knowing that we are being lulled to our own spiritual death. Lord, may we be radically obedient. It means giving our very life. Lord, we know the only safe place is in your will doesn't matter where we live, what neighborhood we inhabit, or what people are, are our neighbors, if they look like us or sound like us. None of those things matter. It, means, it matters being obedient to what it is that you have for us. Lord, I pray today that you take someone, whoever it is, Lord, you know, and that you make them into a missionary. That you place it within their heart to go. Lord, I pray that you might take the rest of us and you might wean us off of this world. Lord, help us to be radically obedient to your name and help us to realize that we have an open door and we must enter in. And it's a door that no one can shut because you yourself have opened it. Lord, I pray that you transform this church and that you use it for your glory. 
And I pray this now in the name of the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, the one who opens the door that no one can shut, shut the door that no one can open. Lord, we worship you. We ask this in your son's precious name. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.